So I'm going to dive right into what I have to say today, and it's going to be a little bit out of the box, but that's how I preach. I have no intention to preach a nice, comfortable message to you. What I want to do is challenge you. It's not about the message that I worked on and prepared. It's about the message that's been working on preparing me. And the message that I'm going to share with you today is very personal because of my background and who I know Rock City Church is called to be, okay? And so in the last few weeks, I've been talking about love, and I've been preaching a message titled Learning to Love. And a few weeks ago, I talked about the Last Supper and how Jesus at the Last Supper, the night that he would be betrayed, denied, and the night that he would go to the cross, laid his life down, took off his power, his cloak, his garments, kneeled down and washed his disciples' feet. He gave Judas one last opportunity to repent. Judas took the bread. It was very clear that he was going to betray Jesus. He was very angry at the things that Jesus was doing. He was deceived. He had been deceived by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to betray Jesus. But despite all those, but despite betrayers and deniers, and even those that had walked with him for years, uh, walking away from him at the cross, despite all that, Jesus would lay his life down, wash their feet, and demonstrate what incredible love looks like. After Judas would get up and walk out, Jesus would then do a teaching on love, and he would say, look, all the world's going to know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And it's important that we understand what it means to love each other and to love others. And I talked about that a few weeks ago. Last week, I talked about what love is and what love isn't. There are several different definitions of love. And the problem is, is the world's really got love skewed really has love misguided, and the definition that they have of love is so inaccurate. And so God raises up people like us to become love. He shows us what his love is so we can love accurately. And in the four different, def, four different definitions of love, one of those definitions is a word that you have for your family. It's called storge. It's a love for your children and a, and a reciprocal love that you have amongst your own personal family. But the problem is, is if you were raised in a home or raised in a family that didn't love well or didn't love accurately and didn't really show you what God's great love is and looks like, we get misguided. And when we have a void and a hole and an emptiness in our heart, we chase after other types of love. When we're not getting reciprocated, good family, brotherly love with family or we didn't get it as a child, what we do is we chase after other types of love. One of those other types of love is the word eros, E-R-O-S in the Greek. And that word is the word for the Greek mythological god of sexual love. And the Roman counterpart of that god is Cupid. Okay, so most of us have seen Cupid, you know, a little child with wings and a bow and arrow that shoots you and injures you but infects you with love. But that word eros is actually the word for sexual love, and it's where we get the word erotic. And what happens is, is when there's a void inside of you or you're not satisfied, you look for comfort and you look for love in all the wrong places. You look to be satisfied. You want to be held by somebody. You want to be attracted to somebody and somebody to be attracted to you. You try to find all these comforts in the things of the world. And that's what I did. So I tell on myself a lot because my testimony has made me so much of who I am today. Now, who I was is not who I am, but it's made me who I am. So I chased after all these different lovers, and I slept around, and I did drugs, and I sold drugs, and I conned people, and I lived a lifestyle in the bars, playing in reggae bands, and following the Grateful Dead, and did all of these things because I was empty and broken on the inside. And so I chased after erotic love because the comfort and the pleasure that I would get in that moment of being in the arms of another felt so good and felt so right, but when it was over, the love was gone. And that's why one out of five people in our society today are looking at pornography. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the statistics here. But what it does mean is there's 70 million hits a day looking at pornography. Somebody has got to address the issue in society today. But the way that you address it is by showing people how great God's love is and calling people out of shame. You can't preach against the things in society and the dysfunction of pornography if you don't show people what real love is and help them to come out of hiding so that they can get free. So I'll tell them myself all day long. I used to be hooked in porn. I used to look at it. I chased after all kinds of lovers. I slept with too many girls that I care to tell you about. But God set me free. And so I have a natural understanding. And you don't have to have a past like I have to need desperate forgiveness for yourself. And we're going to talk about that today. In fact, the best testimony is when you didn't have a past and have a story like mine. That's what I want for my children. 
but I need to teach my children just how much they desperately need God's love and redemption for themselves because everybody is born broken. Make sure we understand that. Everybody is born broken. Everybody is born an orphan, even if you have natural parents. Everybody is born with a carnal nature that needs redemption. And I use my two-year-old and four-year-old all the time as an example because I didn't teach my children to be selfish, to fight over their toys, to bite, to kick, to pull hair, to scream every time that they want something because it's all about them. And what happens is, is we have this carnal nature that everybody was infected with. And until we get redemption through Jesus Christ, we always live selfishly one way or another. And so whether you went out into drinking and partying and drugs and went to prison like I did, whether you did or you didn't, you as equally need forgiveness. In fact, the greater destructive force is when you didn't have a story, you're raised religious, and you get a higher and mightier than I mentality where you're so good you have a disdain for other people. And if you're not careful, you can go to church all your life and have a disdain for the homeless, the prostitutes, the hurting, the broken, the outcast, the Christian that should know better, that's in bondage. And instead of caring and loving and setting them free, you put religious expectations on them and your demeanor is a disdaining, downcast, st stick your nose up in the air mentality. And Jesus would constantly teach against that. And the minute that we become self-righteous and we think it's all about us and we get a disdain for the hurting and the broken is the minute I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. Because I never want to forget where I came from. And even if you didn't come where I came from, if you have the Holy Ghost inside of you, you get the conviction of Jesus inside of you. And you have this alarm system that says, listen, I care and have compassion. You start to see the way he sees whether you went through it or not. But I tell my story a lot because it's so relevant to society. And whether you went through it or not or did what I did or not, I guarantee you there's somebody around you. If you are living and breathing and existing in any way, shape, or form, you are around addicted, hurting, broken, lying, deceptive people. And the only way that you're going to set them free is not with better preaching, better church. You better worship more and putting more religiosity on them. Your love doesn't have any determination or bearing on your salvation. You don't get to take credit for how much you love God to get a reward. Because in that case, because I love him more, I get more than you do. Because you only love him a little. And I'm going to teach that to you today. Now, I've been forgiven of a lot. But everybody needs equal forgiveness. That's what you have to understand. And if your salvation was based on how much you love God, then we'd have a competitive thing going on in here. Salvation is a free gift. Everybody say free gift. Free it's gift. like a fine white linen cloth or streamer hanging right in front of you from heaven. And all you got to do is reach out and grab it, but you have to grab it. Not everybody's saved and they just don't know it. You must take action by having faith. It's faith that leads you. You're saved by grace. The free gift is for you. But it's your action of faith of taking hold of it that puts you into position. If people don't, take faith, if don't have faith and step into it, I can tell you all day long, but at some point you got to grab that white linen streamer and say, I want that for myself. And the great news is it's available for everybody, no matter what a bad dude you were or bad girl you were. Most of us in here this morning are Christians and believers, so you probably wouldn't be here. But some of us in here are probably hurting and struggling and addicted. And I can assure you, most of the clubbers and the partners and the prostitutes are still in bed right now. And they just went to bed a few hours ago. But we can't expect them to come flood in here. And that may happen one day when the Lord of the harvest really starts bringing revival out there, and we better be ready. But let me tell you something. What God wants to do is get you healthy and strong so you can get out those four doors and go make a difference. And that's what Jesus would do. You need to understand that Jesus would teach what an accurate definition of love is. It's not eros, even though eros is good in the marriage bed. When you're married, sexual attraction is a good thing. But it's perverted by the devil, and it becomes erotic, lustful love, and it never satisfied, and it never fills, so we chase after another and another and another. I remember when I was going to get married to Amber, and I had some Jewish friends out in Port Aransas that owned some businesses that always liked me, because I'm Greek, I'm half Jewish, I own a coffee shop. And these guys are married in the natural, and they're sleeping around left and right with who knows who. And I remember when I told them I was getting married, they said, oh, David, David, they talked to me in their Jewish accent. Why do you want to settle for one girl? Won't you get tired of the same thing after a period of time? That's dysfunction.com. 
The problem is we're dissatisfied with ourselves and we're broken and we don't understand what real love is. And when we raise our children in homes that don't have God's agape, unconditional love, let me tell you unconditional love. I love this man whether he comes back, whether he gives money, no matter what he does because I see what's inside of him. And he's in a spiritual war, and I can call it out, but I love him so much that I don't care whether he reciprocates. Storge love requires reciprocation. That's family love. And when you didn't get it back, you're angry, you're mad. It hurts when a family member doesn't love you back, doesn't it? I want my children to cuddle and snuggle all the time, but they don't want to do it all the time. And I'm like, come on, you want to just play with Barbies and dinosaurs? Come on, just come here, let me hold you. That's the last thing they're thinking at this time. But every now and then they crawl up in my arms and it feels so good and it feels so right. And they kiss me and they hug me and they tell me that they love me. And it feels so good. And I reciprocate back. I'm constantly giving to them God's agape love whether they reciprocate or not. And so when somebody doesn't get reciprocated love, what happens is is we look to get it in the comforts of this world and we're never satisfied. The only answer to break the dysfunction of society and pornography and and lustful nights and... uh, children out of wedlock and all the things that we're seeing and we're going to love everybody no matter what they do you need to understand that but we want to see health we want to see life we want to see family the way it's supposed to be and the only way we're going to do it is when we understand god's agape love but you have to learn that you don't just get it i'll teach you about the cross the gospel i'll tell you how much jesus loved you your heart will be moved you'll respond you'll awaken but then you enter into the promise process of really realizing just how much god loves you Now, you'll see it even prior to that because the fact that I spun out so much and all the horrible things that I did, God was still there. It blew my mind. It blows my mind. My most favorite thing about God is how I can blow it and mess it up so bad over and over and over again, and he just keeps loving me. And then finally, I'm like, you know what? I can't resist your love anymore. You keep getting me. You keep showing me that you care so much. I'm the one that's breaking myself because God's not breaking me. It's his laws that he's already established that break me. Sin is what kills you. Eventually, the wages of sin is death. The pleasures may be temporary and for a season, but in the end, it kills you. And at some point, people walk in and near death, and I say, hey, I got a better way. I've got an answer. Let me show you how God set me free. And we've got to love in a way that shows people the kindness and the care and the compassion, but you'll never do it till you get it for yourself. You've got to get it for yourself. I can't make you be broken. I remember early on when I became a Christian, I knew this scripture in Psalm 51 that the sacrifice of the Lord are a contrite spirit and a broken heart. And it's like, man, well, then I want that, so I'm going to make myself be broken. And I used to try to break myself. It was the silliest, funniest thing. I was like, come on, you cry. You got to cry right now. Oh, God, break. You can't break yourself. You only get broken when you realize your depravity. you got to recognize and realize the spiritual depravity and how much God's kindness and his love because it's his kindness that causes you to think different and repent. Yeah. That's why I'm always going to preach, and I'll, I'll talk about sin too and how to kill you. But I'm always going to show you the kindness and the greatness and the love of the Lord. And I'm always going to demonstrate what real love looks like. And that real love is I'm not looking at you to see where your sin is or to catch you. Or to find out where your problem is. I get around people all the time. They hear I'm a pastor. And it's like they clam up. They close up. Oh my gosh. What's he going to see? What's he going to say? And the only way that you're ever going to set somebody free from shame and religious dysfunction. Is when you learn to love. And you get it for yourself so that you can give it to others. Everybody say this with me. Say a noun leads to a verb. It's just so simple. If you don't possess it, you can't give it. A noun is a thing you possess. It's something that you have inside of you. And in phileo and agape, they both have derivatives that are nouns. Love is an action. It's more than a feeling. The feeling, the actions of love bring the feelings of love. That's why Jesus would die whether we loved him first. In fact, the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. The Bible says that while we were in the midst of our darkness and deception, when you were the furthest you could be from God in the most darkest hour, Jesus gave his life for you. And the blood and the cross still cries out every day, not just then, but today. And I don't care what you did or you didn't do. Your love or God's love for you is not based on your value, your merit, or your worth. It's unconditional. He loves you despite you. Despite you. So a noun leads to a verb, but if you don't possess it, you'll never give it. 
and you can't fake it. That's what religion does. That's what real hypocrisy is. It pretends to be something it's not, and most of us can see right through religious hypocrisy, can't we? That's why this church is growing, because I'm not afraid to be real, tell it like it is, and raise up a culture of people that really love God and love each other, and we get past the dysfunctional religious thing that judges, tears down, and beats people over the head with the Bible. But it's not afraid to talk about the real things and the hard things and teach the Bible. But you've got to have love ruling and reigning inside of you. And you can only get God's agape love by getting born again and saying, God, I want that. And saying to yourself, I don't really know how to love. That's why I told a, a really hard story on myself on the beginning of this. I've never told this story before. Some of you weren't here. But when we first started the church, I'm not afraid to tell the story. My wife wasn't upset about it at all. I know I'm in process. I know I got to learn, and so does she, and so do you. So you be transparent. My wife says, I feel like you love the church more than you love me. You're all excited about ministry, and I feel like you love them more. And one of my greatest things that I never wanted to do was to have a greater love for you and the ministry than my own family. And I'm one person with the ministry, and I'm one person at home. And have you ever been around somebody like that? I don't want to be that guy. And it really cut me to the heart. I said, I don't understand. That's not my heart. That's not what I want to do. I've done that. And I got real defensive. And that day, I was flying to Colorado. I got on a plane. And I said, Lord, I don't know why my wife said that. I mean, I'm just so offended by that. I was offended. Defensive. And the Lord says, you know she's right. I said, no, I don't understand how she's right. And he began to show me that because I was orphaned as a child, my multimillionaire blood father, look it up by name. It's not hard to find because we have the same name. In Beverly Hills, California, doesn't respond to my emails, my pictures. I've reached out to him, and I'm not angry at him. In fact, I pray for him. I ask God to show himself to him. I pray that he'll turn around so he can meet his grandkids and get to know me and that I can get to know him. And despite him leaving me, I'm not living in a victim mentality. And though neglect and abandonment was spoken in my life as a young age, and though that was everything wrong, I understand when Jesus was on the cross, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you may have been abused and raped and really, really hurt as a child. I deal with that all the time. You may have had lovers stab you in the back and people you really trusted let you down. But Jesus had that when he was hanging on the cross. He had an adulterous bride and the very people he healed and loved and set free were screaming, crucify him. And instead of fighting and defending for him, even his own disciples checked out. So he's hanging on the cross. They're spitting on him, mocking him, trying to pour vinegar down his throat, pulling the hair out of his beard, cutting his sides, sticking thorns in his head. And he's hanging there in agony. And what does he say? Forgive them for they know not what they do. Because the basic understanding of deception is simply believing a lie. It's thinking that you're right when you're not. Believing something that's not true. And most people believe things that aren't true when they treat people erroneously. Most people are in deception. And so Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. That doesn't mean they get a pass. It doesn't mean they weren't wrong. But what it does mean is I'm not living in a victim mentality, blaming my mom and my dad for my spinning out dysfunction. And though it may have played a factor in it, once I became a man, I made choices. I chose to sell those drugs. I chose to sleep around. I chose to steal. I chose to lie. I chose to, and it brought consequences to my life. And so instead of being bitter and angry and ticked off and mad at the world, I broke. And I said, Jesus, have mercy. Father, I need you because I can't keep doing it the way that I'm doing it now. I can't keep living this way. And I may not understand why my dad, my earthly blood father, doesn't respond the way that I think he should. But the good news was I got a dad that I never had. I got a heavenly father. And that heavenly father instilled real love inside of me. And now with my children, I can instill real love inside of them. But they still need redemption and forgiveness. And they will still at some point need to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, God forbid something happens to a child, they're going to be with Jesus. But at some point, that old carnal nature that everybody was born with, that broken orphan thing that every one of us had, or some of us may still have today, needs to be redeemed. A new life has to come into our old life. Because trust me, you wouldn't like me very much if I wasn't born again. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. If I wasn't born again, first of all, I wouldn't be standing here preaching. Duh. But I'd be all about myself, chasing after money. I'd be probably either dead or very wealthy. 
I'd be a lying, I'd have four or five marriages under my belt. I'd never be satisfied. I'd never be happy. I'd be living and chasing after the things of the world full time. And I'd have a lot of party friends, but when the party was over, my friends would be gone. And if I didn't have the pot and the drugs and the alcohol and the shots, trust me, they weren't there. Try it. You've been living that lifestyle? Just make the decision to live for Jesus, man. It's not going to take long before most of those friends are checked out on you. And all you want to do is live a better life. The problem is, is the world has sold a bill of goods on what Jesus, who Jesus is, what the Father's love is, and what real religion looks like. Real religion is not that you're a good churchgoer, do all the religious right things, and become high and mighty. Real religion from a biblical context is going to the station church tonight. Real religion from a biblical context is rescuing the orphans, is helping the widows and the outcasts and bringing justice to where there's an injustice. And then we come to a place where we stop living in injustice for ourselves. And now Jesus flips the tables. And when I used to do injustice, I now bring justice to those places. And so you got to get a healthy, proper definition of real, what real love is. And you have to say to yourself, I don't know what real love is. And so the Lord told me about my wife. He said, you were orphaned as a child. And because I rescued you, you have an incredible love for those that need to be rescued. But I was raised by a single father. My mother and my father split up when I was young, and I was raised by a man who wasn't married, who had girlfriends that lived in the house. So I just followed the same path. Lost my virginity at a young age, started chasing girls, sleeping around, all at a very young age. Because girls were pawns to fulfill my needs and satisfy my desires and to bring a temporary cover. Uh, comfort and pleasure that I wasn't getting from a healthy family dynamic and especially the Lord. So of course I love you. But in loving my wife, I have to learn what it means to lay my life down. I have to learn what it means to, to be mutually submitted to one another. I have to learn what it means to be a confident leader of the home spiritually while at the same time not suppressing her but letting her become everything God's called her to be. And that's a process of learning to love. You know, I have to teach my children how to love. Okay, now, they have an innate instinct for phileo love. Every child and every family has an innate instinct to be loved and want to give love to a certain degree. But we walk into school, the secretary says good morning, and my daughter just walks right on by like, I don't know you, don't even talk to me. <laughs> you go to high-five my son a lot of times, he just looks down and walks away. You're, hey, Zion, high-five. He just turns his head down and walks away. I'm like, now, son... I need to teach my children what it means to be kind, to say good morning, to reciprocate, to shake hands. I, we don't teach our kids stranger danger. It doesn't mean that we don't watch out for them and teach them to be alert and wise. And it doesn't mean we don't set good bounds and protection over them. And it doesn't mean we let them just take candy from a stranger. It's not what I'm talking about. But to teach them stranger danger and that everybody that you don't know could potentially be a danger, that's dysfunction. That's not biblical. That's not the way that God wants us to raise our children. I already know that people are broken and dysfunction. So what you do is you teach our children. We teach our children how God loved and how we love. And we stay wise and alert and be smart. And we set good boundaries for them. So love has to be learned. And we got to get a healthy understanding and perception, perspective of what real love is. Okay? Now, God put Rock City Church right at the corner of Waldron Road and SPID. There's a lot of crack addicts around this city. There's a lot of meth addicts. There's a lot of gangs. There's a lot of darkness. There's human trafficking going on all around us. Every two weeks on payday, there's an area of town where cars are lined up to hook up with prostitutes. Every two weeks, lines upon lines going right on in our city and under our nose. And these are people that are very broken, very hurting, and, and have a real distant understanding of who God is and what his love is, just like I did, okay? And so Jesus would tear those walls down, and early on in Jesus' ministry, he would really anger the religious leaders of the day, really anger them. He would do things that would make the religious leaders so mad. Let me give you some examples. One of the examples of what Jesus would do is right off the bat in the beginning is he would call his disciples to follow him, and those disciples would be the outcasts and scourge of society. Tax collectors were hated by the religious leaders and even the Jewish people because tax collectors were in cahoots with the Roman government, and they were oppressing their own people to pay taxes to the Roman government, all while getting kickbacks and pocketing the money for themselves. 
tax collectors were hated. The fishermen were outcasts and not followers of the religious way, okay? So he'd right off the bat call these people that were totally outcasts from the religious system. That's the first thing he'd do that'd make him so mad. Then he'd start doing some really crazy things that would defy the religious leader's law of the day. I mean, odd stuff, but stuff to really demonstrate that what he does and who he is would actually give life to them and that he wasn't to shrink back from giving life to others. Here's one example. There was a widow who had a son who died. a widow of Nain. This is a story that's in like Luke chapter 6. And there's this huge funeral procession and everybody's weeping and crying and Pharisees and religious leaders are all around. So Jesus would do something that would make them so, make the religious leaders so angry and so upset. Not only was he going to raise the girl from the dead, but when he walked up to the coffin, he did something that no one should ever do if they're a religious leader. He touched the coffin. I could just see Jesus walk up. Everybody's looking around. He looks at the coffin, looks around, goes, and touches the coffin. Because the premise is, is that he would become ceremonially unclean. It was a religious law that you were to never touch the dead or touch the coffin. And he would touch the coffin, and then the girl would instantly raise up from the dead. Then Jesus would do this other thing that really would make the Pharisees so angry to the point of them having rage, rage, and then plotting to kill him. He would heal somebody on the Sabbath day. I know, so bad, right? But you have to understand the religious leaders were angry because Jesus was defying their man-made laws. And so God would give 10 commandments, man would come in and put in like another 300. And they had all these rules and policies like make sure your hands are washed and the utensils you eat with are washed. You can't do any work on the Sabbath. All kinds of crazy things that were defying who God was because they were more into their religious traditions than they were really honoring the Father's heart and loving people. And so when he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees were so angry. And Jesus would start hanging out with alcoholics. He'd start hanging out with prostitutes. And I'm not saying making them his inner circle of friends. What I'm saying is, is he would go into the dark places and build relationships with them. And in Luke chapter 7, right before we read the story that I'm about to tell you, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking about how he likens this generation unto children in the marketplace that play the flute and play a funeral dirge, and they don't sing and they don't dance, and wisdom's justified by our children. And he says, John the Baptist came, and you said he had a demon, and he didn't do anything wrong. But here I come, hanging out with the outcasts and the prostitutes and the alcoholics, and you call me a whoremonger and a wine-bibber. That's what Jesus said. And so Jesus was breaking all the rules and making the Pharisees so angry. Now, let me tell you about the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means, the actual word for the word Pharisee means separated one. And what a Pharisee does is they separate themselves from the world so that the world's dirt and darkness and uncleanliness won't infect them. It's so jacked up. But if you're not careful, religious dysfunction to this day sets in, and you think that because you came out of that, and here comes somebody at Rock City, they sit down next to you, they're smelly, they came right off the streets, they've been partying all night, they're homeless. We can easily have a disdain for them or look down to them. I talk about the ISIS fighters a lot, and I totally support our military. We've got uh, one of our congregants right now in their fourth deployment. The wife and children come here, they've been with me for 10 years, and he serves our country, and anybody that serves our country has my full support in every way. I support our military, and it doesn't mean I agree with every war and every decision that the, that the government makes. But if you've enlisted in the, in the military and you serve our country, you have my 100% support no matter where you go and what you do. And if you're called to go out and fight these ISIS fighters and fight people in other countries and that requires you to kill somebody, you still have my support because you are supporting our country and you made a decision to enlist. And I know some people may not like that or agree with that, but I'm telling you, the Bible says to honor the laws and the authorities that are over you. And when you make that choice and commitment and decision, God will honor that. But you have to understand that even that ISIS, ISIS fighter, even Islam, all are descendants of Abraham. Islam and the nation of Islam came via Ishmael, which was Abraham's son, first son. Not his, the son that got the blessing, but really kind of an illegitimate son. And so God loves them. 
And that's why Jesus is showing himself to the nation of Islam all over the world through dreams, supernatural encounters. These fighters are getting born again and saved. And if you could understand that these, these Muslim fighters were once children that were indoctrinated to hate, Amer hate us, to kill us, to, and to hate everything that Christianity stands for, and that's all that they've known, God still loves them and still wants us. So I still, I don't have a hatred, seething hatred for anybody. And you've got to get a reconciliation in your heart between the Old and the New Testament. You say, well, God will wipe out. God was, would say to, the, to Israel, have no mercy and have no pity on all the seven different nations that you would come against when you head to the promised land. Wipe them out. But if you read Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7, you'll understand that all of those nations hated Israel and would want to inflict idolatry and their gods and lead them astray from the living God. And God had a purpose for Israel. And that purpose was Jesus Christ. And if Jesus Christ did not come, you and I wouldn't be born again and sitting here and have life the way that we do. And so there was this great epic spiritual war and battle that would manifest itself in the natural in the Old Testament. And God would have to be very firm with the nation of Israel in teaching them and showing them how to war and to fight so that Jesus could ultimately come. But when Jesus came, the, the, the law changed. It went from old covenant to new covenant. God didn't change, but he changed the rules. So now he says, love your enemy. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Those that come against you, bless them. Because that's what Jesus would do. Now you make room for the Lord to bring justice the way he wants to bring justice. So you can't have a hatred for anybody. Right. You've got to have a love and a desire to see people know the greatness of what we know. But you'll never do that until you know it for yourself. And so the Pharisees... The Pharisees are kind of like the guardians of the galaxy. <laughs> Except they're bad, okay? They're not bringing justice. They're bad, lying, hypocritical dudes. And the, really what the Pharisees are is they're the guardians of the law. You need to know that. So the, the Pharisees were the ones that determined whether the religious laws of the day were right or wrong and accepted people based on the things that they did. And they were the ones that made all these extra laws, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin. And so they were the guardians of the law. That's why I call them the, like the guardians of the galaxy, okay? And they made all the determinations of what was right and what was wrong. And so the Pharisees were so angry that they decided that they were going to try to trick and trap Jesus. And they had a plan of how they were going to do it. So they get this. I'm going to story tell for you now. Is that all right? I'm going to paraphrase the story in the Bible and try to make it very personal so that you can understand. And then we'll read it exactly word for word in the scripture. This is Luke, in Luke chapter 7. And this is where Jesus gets anointed by a prostitute. Okay? And that's why the title of my message today is Love That Can Be Touched. Because the religious law said that those that were ceremonially unclean will make the righteous unrighteous. But everything Jesus did would demonstrate the opposite. That when you're born again and you're transformed and you have life, we should never be afraid or worried of somebody that comes in that's a sinner that is ceremonially unclean. Because we have a transference of life from us to others. Everything in ministry is about transference of life. If you've come in this morning empty and broken, you should get a transference of life into you when you hear about what Jesus did and what he can do for you. The hurting and the broken are going to walk in. The witches and the Satanists are going to walk in. I already know they'll try to come in and distract. But God's so much greater. Maybe one will come in and experience his love and get born again. Maybe one of them will hear the story of how God took me from meditating on crystals and tarot cards and astrology, rocked me, saved me, healed me. Now I have more power. Maybe they'll come in on a Wednesday night and see somebody get a demon set free or see somebody get healed. Maybe they'll see something greater and better like Simon the sorcerer did in Acts chapter 8. And we can show this culture and this society what the real power of God is. Right. Sorcery and palm readers, they don't have it. They're just misguided prophets is what they are. Prophets that became psychics because the church pushed them out. So let's call them back in. Let's give a place to seers and those that can walk in the supernatural gifts and the promises of God. Why not? We can't be afraid of those things. We have life. We have power. So this Pharisee, Gets together with a group of Pharisees. His name's Simon, which means Petra or rock. But this guy's got a hard heart, hard as a rock. And he's going to set up Jesus. So he invites Jesus to lunch. 
And there's other Pharisees there, and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to come over to your house for lunch. Now, in those days, the houses in Jerusalem are not like the houses we have now, nor the tables the way that we have tables now. Okay, so tables then were low to the ground, and you would sit on a cushion sideways with your feet propped up. Now, picture a low table on the ground with all these religious leaders sitting around with their feet propped up like spokes in a wheel all the way around the table. And the houses had rooms within rooms. They had inner rooms, okay, storage houses, and they had all these little inner rooms within a room. And the way that it would work at the Pharisee's house is that the religious leaders would get together in the inside room, but anybody was welcome to come to listen in on the conversation, except they could not come into the inner room. They would have to sit along the wall on the outside and listen in from the outside because the best table was only reserved for the religious leaders, the elite of the day. Now, some people would come and listen to those conversations, and I can only imagine what those conversations were like. The Pharisees were probably sitting at the table telling stories about the issues of the people sitting outside in hopes that they would change, right? And they're probably talking about them, and it was just dysfunctional. So Simon invites Peter over, or Jesus over to his house. Jesus comes in and reclines at the table, and here shows up a prostitute. Now, this prostitute must have been hearing about Jesus or heard some of the message that Jesus had told because the Bible says that when she heard that Jesus was there, she made the decision that she was going, okay? Now, at the Pharisee's house, there was probably a doorkeeper or a guard or a temple guard or somebody that would monitor who would come and go. And I can imagine that this prostitute shows up. She's got an alabaster jar, which is a soft marble jar, like a goblet with a long neck. And it had a very costly, fragrant perfume inside of it. What do you think she's using the perfume for? Most of the time, she's anointing herself for the guy she's probably been hooking up with the night before. So she shows up at the door with this costly perfume, and I could just see the guy standing at the door. And I'm taking some liberty because I'm wondering to myself, how did the prostitute get into the Pharisee's house? Because you've got to understand, a prostitute, one, would never be allowed publicly in broad daylight with a crowd into the Pharisee's house. Now, it's possible she's been there before, if you know what I mean. I'm just saying. So she shows up, and there's the temple guard, the guy standing at the door. Whoever's watching the door comes in. Here she comes, and she's got this jar, and he probably thinks one of two things. Either A, she's going to give that, that jar a costly perfume that she probably has been earning on the streets as a prostitute, as an offering. And of course, the, of course, the Pharisees are going to take the offering. Or B, she's been there before. But see, he didn't know, whoever was watching the door didn't know why she was really coming. And let me tell you why she was really coming. She had heard Jesus's message. She had seen Jesus's lifestyle. And finally, she realized my lifestyle of prostituting myself, sin, Living, I was finally at my end. I'd given myself away so much, I can't live this way anymore. And there's something different about this guy, Jesus. So she makes the decision and the determination that she's going to go see him. She makes it past the door. And as soon as she gets in past the door, she doesn't go sit along the wall on the outside to listen in. She marches right in to where Jesus is and the Pharisees sitting around the table and as soon as she walks in, she starts weeping. Some of the Bible versions say that her tears were like a flood or a river or a waterfall coming out of her eyes. And I've had a dream before where in the dream I was crying so much that water was shooting out of my eye like a squirt gun. And she comes in and she starts weeping and bawling her eyes out. And you know what? In this whole interaction, she never says a word. She gets complete healing, forgiveness, and redemption without saying one word, which goes to show that if you think all your good words and your piety, and you better say a special certain prayer, and you better pray enough and read your Bible, if you think that's what's going to move the heart of God, it's not. People all day long say the sinner's prayer, walk away, and don't know him, and don't make the choice to really live for him. 
What I don't want you to do is get moved under the influence of my preaching and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. What I want you to do is get a revelation of your depravity and say, I've got to turn, I've got to live different, and this Jesus loves me and he cares about me. If you go again, read Deuteronomy 5, 6, and 7, everything in those chapters is about a covenant of love. And I haven't even started teaching on covenant in this church. If you want to learn about covenant, don't go the religious route and do all the study of covenant. Go read the book of Ruth. If you want to cry, if you want your heart to break, you read the book of Ruth. And you understand God's kindness and covenantial love for the outcast. Because God loves the outcast so much that he would take Ruth, who was a Moabite, who was not a Jew, and through her lineage and family line, would come the Messiah. And he would teach you about Naomi, who would lose her husband and her two sons and would fall into bitterness and anger in her heart and would say, don't even call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter because I'm so hurt, I've lost everything. And God would use Ruth to restore her life completely and bring a new child. And that child, Obed, would bring Jesse, who would bring David. Whew, man, there's an anointing talking about that. I'm telling you, you got you to understand God knows what he's doing. And he would even use Rahab a harlot to bring his, his lineage through. And you think you're so bad and you messed up so bad that God can't redeem you and rescue you? Let me tell you something. There are two people in this story that need redemption and forgiveness that I'm telling you right now. One owed 10 times more than the other. One would not pay his debt and not get forgiveness. He owed the most. The one that owed the least was the prostitute. I'm going to show it to you here in a minute. You think you're so bad and you've got so much going on? God loves you so much that he died no matter where you were and what you've gone through. We've got misguided perceptions of how much God really loves you. And you've got to say to yourself, I don't really know how much Jesus loves me. I don't understand. I remember I took 52 teenagers to IHOP and Mike Bickle walks in. This is in Kansas City, a house of prayer. And there's all my teenagers. I say, Mike, what do you want to tell all my teenagers? He says, if there's one thing I could teach you is that God loves you way more than you think he does. Most of you really think he loves you about right here a couple feet off the ground, but his love is infinite. And never forget, no matter how much you screw up, instead of running from him, run to him. Amen. It was powerful. And so back to the story. So here comes the prostitute. She'd been living full time. Another version said she was a sinner. You know what a sinner means? It means I've completely made my occupation and my living as a full-time sinner. I'm full-time all the time. Me, myself, and I. Sin.com, and I'm the poster child for it. It means I live it, dwell it. It's all about my self-gratification. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Drugs, alcohol, party, sex, stealing, lying, cheating. Man, I am a full-time sinner. That's what it means. It means I'm nonstop living for myself. And that's what the Bible says this girl was. So she comes in and she starts weeping. Weeping is a sign of godly sorrow. Weeping is a sign of repentance. She didn't have to say anything. Yeah. I've had friends tell me every time I come to church, all I do is cry. I just cry, cry, cry. I can't even go to church because all I do is cry. <laughs> Why? Because they're so bad. They come in, their heart breaks so much and they start to weep. And instead of responding, they run away of shame and if you start getting moved with compassion and worship and you start getting touched by the holy spirit i start preaching a message that moves you and you start to well up in tears godly sorrow leads to repentance the purpose of godly sorrow is not just to live in a pity party of my brokenness but to realize i'm jacked up i'm broken i've been living so contrary i feel that inside of my heart god i'm going to respond to you and i'm going to turn and change the way that i think Repentance isn't answering a quick altar call here today. Repentance isn't you just said, I'm sorry. Repentance is a, broke, a contrite brokenness thing in your heart that makes you think different and realize God really loves me and cares about me. And that's what she recognized. She comes in. She starts weeping. She falls down at her feet. Now, you need to think of the awkwardness of this moment. Think of, put yourself in this position. Religious Pharisees sitting all around the table. I'm laid back in a reclining position. A prostitute walks in, starts crying, falls down on her knees, starts washing Jesus' very dirty feet, by the way, 
because the Pharisee didn't wash his feet, which was a customary act of respect, not even appreciation. The most basic respect is if you come over to my house and I take your coat, offer you a drink, can you imagine you come over and I just turn my back on you and say, forget you, do whatever you want, and I just treat you unhospitable. And so the most basic act of respect was to wash, the, wash somebody's feet when they came. And Simon didn't even, the Pharisee didn't even do that. So here comes this prostitute, falls down, starts crying. How many tears must she have cried to wash somebody's feet? This isn't a few drops of water. As much sin as she had is as much tears as she was crying. And she starts washing Jesus' feet, and then she does the unthinkable. I mean, she really does the unthinkable. She lets her hair down. Now, let me tell you in that culture, in that culture, there was only one time a girl was taking her hair down, and it wasn't publicly in the day for everybody to see. So now, probably an attractive prostitute comes in, pulls the thing out of her hair. Her hair falls down, and the Bible says the glory of a woman is her hair. She would trade the glory that she had for other men and other lovers. She would take now everything that was her glory and give it back to Jesus, and she would start to dry his hair, or I'm sorry, his feet with her hair. And then after she dries his hair, she would take this alabaster jar, everything that was valuable to her that she would use for her own livelihood, she would crack it open and anoint Jesus' feet right there in front of everybody while she's kissing his feet. Seriously, this is in the Bible. She's kissing his feet, washing his feet, drying his feet, and the Pharisees are just angry. And Simon says to himself, within his heart, not even out loud, he says to himself, we'll read the story in a minute. I know this story because I've read it a lot, but it's personal to me. And this is a message of Rock City. This is who we are. And so Simon says to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is that's touching him. Because for a prostitute to touch a rabbi was the unthinkable. Her uncleanliness, according to the religious ceremonial law, would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. And the Pharisees were angry and then begin to question and, and actually seal the deal in their minds that Jesus is not who he said he was. And the trap was this, that the Pharisees now got Jesus right where they want him to be. Because if this guy was really a rabbi and really somebody that kept the law, he just broke it all and wait till the public gets the front page headline news article of this. Rabbi comes to Pharisee's house. Prostitute comes in, pours her costly perfume on his feet and starts kissing his feet and letting her hair down and drooling all over him. And the rabbi did nothing about it. Ra rabbi is a harlot too. And we got him. And not only did we get him, but there's witnesses. They thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him. It was a total setup. And so Jesus perceives in the spirit because he's a real prophet. Here's, think about the contrast. Simon is saying, this guy, if he was really a prophet, he'd know who she really was. You know why he's thinking that to himself? Because he knew who she really was. Do you see that? He's, see, the Pharisee knew that who she was. I wonder how he knew. If he really knew, if Jesus was a real prophet, he would discern this was a prostitute and what was happening here. So Jesus perceives the thoughts of Simon and Jesus looks at the woman while he's talking to Simon. Let's say that you're the prostitute. We play the prostitute for right now, though you're not. We know that, but we're role playing. Okay? And this is the Pharisee. Jesus would look at her but speak to him. And he would, say, he would say this, Simon, let me ask you a question. There was a creditor that owed, that had two people that owed money. Now think about it, there's two people. One of the debtors owed 10 times more than the other. 
and he uses a scenario of 50 denarii or, or 500 denarii. One denarii was a day's worth of wages. So one person would owe two months, about two months. The other would owe about 20 months, 10 times more, almost two years. The, the debtors could not pay back their debt. So the creditor freely forgave them and wiped their debt away. Who do you think would be more grateful and have more love? Who would love more? And Simon says, I suppose it would be the one that was forgiven more. And Jesus says, you judge rightly because he'd been judging erroneously. And then Jesus says, I walked into your house, Simon, and you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. You didn't even give me the most basic common courtesy of respect. But this woman washed my feet with her tears and then dried them with her hair. And then you didn't even give me an oil to anoint my head, which is a sign of honor. And I guarantee you, every other Pharisee sitting in that room got their feet washed, their head anointed, and got a holy kiss. And he says, when I walked in, you didn't even give me a kiss, Simon. But she's kissed, not stopped kissing my feet. Stand up for a second. Everywhere in the New Testament, we read about a holy kiss. So I come, I go, hey, man, good to see you. That's a holy kiss. It's not weird, but it's a sign of loyalty and love. And in those days, that was a cultural norm, a holy kiss. That's why the Bible said greet each other with the holy kiss. That wasn't weird. It's like, man, I love you. I care about you. I have an affection for you. It's not erotic eros affection. It's phileo, brotherly love affection. I care about you. So I give you a holy kiss, and anytime you come to my house, I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to give you some water to wash your feet, and then I'm going to anoint your head with oil because I'm going to honor you. Honor, devotion, and loyalty. Jesus would get none of it from the Pharisee, but get all of it from a harlot, prostitute woman. And that's what's happening today. God is calling out more and more women into the ministry and supernatural life. You're seeing a resurgence of the bride of Christ. And God would defy religious dysfunction by allowing this prostitute woman to be broken open and to pour herself out at Jesus' feet. And then he would say, she did all these things and her sins are forgiven, therefore she loves much. But he who's been forgiven little loves little. And I had to wrestle a long time thinking about that scripture. What does that mean? Some people have to be forgiven more than others and get more forgiveness than others. And the Lord said, no. Everybody needs forgiveness equally. But it's a heart understanding and a mindset of I don't need a lot of forgiveness. I haven't been that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I've done all the right things. And Jesus is talking about two people that owe debts, one ten times more than another, Guess who needed the most forgiveness in the room? Guess who owed 500? The Pharisee owed 10 times more than the prostitute. And the thing is, is the Pharisee was hard-hearted. And he's like, oh, I, don't, I need little forgiveness. But the prostitute knew she needed a lot of forgiveness. And then Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees get even more angry. You know what they say? How does this man, who does he think he is? Who do you think you are offering forgiveness to a prostitute? And then Jesus looks at her and he says, your faith has saved you. And what I want you to understand is that faith is the proper response to God's extension of forgiveness and love. He's already provided the forgiveness He's already provided the grace. You're saved by a free gift of grace, but it's through faith. It's you responding. You've got to make the decision to respond. She responded. She pressed in past all the odds, let her hair down, went into the Pharisee's house, gave all that she had, and in turn, she received salvation, and she received complete forgiveness. True love is really understanding how God washes and cleanses all of our past. And the ones that often need it the most are are the religious elite. They stink the most to me. They stink the most to Jesus because they think they've got it going on, but they're really lukewarm. And what I want to say to Rock City Church today and to all of us, 
May we never lose the love and the compassion and the care for the outcasts and the hurting and the broken and the prostitutes and those that have really jacked up, jacked it up the most. And please understand this. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You don't have a merit for it. Your value didn't make it happen. It's because God loves you so much that he's coming after you and he's made a covenant to rescue you and save you. All you've got to do is respond to it and take hold of it and know no matter how bad of a dude you've been, God's got a new fresh start for you. And that's not a hyped up thing to get you to do something. What I'm telling you is it's a reality. And that's what saved and rescued me. That's how I came out of that lifestyle. So let's look at the scripture. Let's just read the story real quick so you can see it in the Bible. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 7 starting at verse 36. Let's read the story for ourselves. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Another version says she was a prostitute. Another version says she was the town harlot. Another one says a word I don't really want to say. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at the feet behind him, weeping presence of God broke her open and she started to pour her heart out she began to wash his feet with her tears wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he spoke to himself saying this man if he were a prophet would know who and what manner of woman this is who, who is touching him for she is a full-time all the time, fully occupied, sinner. Verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. Verse 41. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay. Let me just make sure you all understand. You have nothing with which to repay. Jesus says, God says in Isaiah 55, come to me, you who have no money, and buy wine, milk, and bread, and receive that which you don't have money to buy. It's powerful. So he had no money to repay. He freely forgave. Let's everybody say he freely forgives. You could be a gangbanger. You could be fresh out of jail. You can be right off the streets. You could have slept with 100 men last week. But God in his love and his kindness is coming after you inside of his heart. You got to respond to that tug inside of your heart. And all you got to do is come as you are. The Pharisees would have you become more ceremonial clean. Here's what religion tells you. Now, if you start coming to church more, if you start tithing, if you wash yourself up real good and stop doing what you're doing, we'll accept you. That is such a lie. Such a lie. We'll take you just as you are because that's how Jesus does. And it says he freely forgave them both. So both people receive forgiveness. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Verse 33, 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Verse 44. Then he returned to the woman. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with, this fra with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, it's kind of like this, her sins, and let me tell you, she is loaded to the max. She's been so bad. Are forgiven, for she loved much. Another way to read that, the word for in the Greek is actually therefore or wherefore. So the mindset is, is that though her sins are many, she's forgiven, and therefore she loves much. Please understand, it's faith, not how much you love God that brings you to salvation. You don't earn it. You put your trust in God. It's not merit and worthiness. It's faith and trust. 
And it's got to start somewhere. And when you make that decision today, it doesn't mean you get it all tomorrow. You learn and process. That's why you've got to be around a family and a church that loves you, that walks with you, that encourages you, that helps you. And though you keep falling, we say, keep getting up, man. It's all right. You're going to get it. Yeah. We're for you, not against you. We believe in you. We're going to prophesy over you. We're going to speak life to you. We're going to have discipleship. We're going to go to lunch. You're going to come to the classes. You're going to grow. And we're not going to give up. No matter how much you keep messing up, as long as you keep coming, as long as you keep believing, we believe in you all the time. Yeah. So she loves much, but to whom who little is forgiven, the same loves little. Let me just tell you guys, the same loves little or being forgiven little is a heart mindset. It's a heart mindset. And there's two people here in this story, the Pharisee and the prostitute. One owed a bigger debt than the other, and one didn't think they needed forgiveness, did they? Next verse. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And this is where the Pharisees say, who does this man think he is? Verse 49. Those who sat at the table to begin to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then verse 50, he looks at the woman and he says, your faith has saved you. Now go in perfect tranquility and peace in your life because you're not going to need to chase after any other lovers anymore. You now have the, have the peace you've been missing the whole time. Yeah. Isn't that powerful? Yes. Isn't that an amazing word? listening to a message from David Bindet, Senior Pastor of Rock City Church in beautiful Corpus Christi, Texas. David's prayer is for a deeper understanding of God's love and purpose for your life, and that all of us would grow into a greater awareness of our identity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and until next time, stay fired up!